Clean language is not about not swearing. It's not about speaking simply and clearly, or not primarily about that. What it is, is a precision inquiry technique, a way of finding out what someone is really thinking and feeling. What's behind their words? What's behind their gestures? Hello, I'm Judy Reese, and you're listening to Guts Talks, double G, U double T. Hi everyone, Maria here, and welcome to season two of God Talks, WGUWT, a podcast focusing on business and tech for good, experience design, and gut feelings. I'm Maria, designer, strategist, and venture builder running Gut, WGUWT, a design and innovation hub. I decided to launch God Talks as the pandemic hit with an ambition to educate, put some karma on the board, and feature entrepreneurs, industry leaders, and investors who deserve recognition and have inspiring stories to tell. Feel free to email me if you need me, maria at god.com, W-G-U-T, or check the links in the show notes. If you haven't noticed, there are no sponsors for the show, but you can still support God Talks, and it's super easy. Just leave a five-star review and a comment. And follow our social media channels on LinkedIn, YouTube, Instagram, and the Telegram channel. All links are in the show notes. Now let's get started. Our guest today is Judy Reese, who brings great minds together to collaborate, share, and learn. She's the co-author of the Clean Language book, a best-selling book, and applies clean language in her teaching, coaching, and facilitating activities, amongst other methods and methodologies. I just want to give credit to Adam Lawrence here from episode 24 and 25, who, during a conversation, not in this podcast, but in another occasion or so, mentioned clean language and Judy Reese. And this is how I googled you. I found you, Judy, on LinkedIn. Thank you for answering and being here on God Talks. And thank you, Adam, for everything you share, because I learned a lot from you also. And really, really pleased to have you here, Judy, on God Talks. How are you? I'm very well and very curious and interested to be here. I just wanted to ask you if you know Adam Lawrence. As far as I know, I don't know him. I just checked him out on LinkedIn. We're not first degree connections. So as far as I know, we're not directly connected. But my guess is that we've bumped into each other somewhere along the way. Um, You may have noticed I've been on YouTube forever. And there's a lot of my stuff on YouTube and on various social channels about clean language and about the stuff that I've been doing for quite a long time now. But I've been doing a lot of it since the COVID lockdown started, which is about facilitation online and taking your in-the-room facilitation skills and creating highly engaging workshops and that kind of thing in a Zoom space or associated technologies. Zoom is not the only one Uh, nowadays, at least. When the lockdowns first started, Zoom was really the only technology you could use to do a highly engaging workshop or a training where people were really going to do interactive things with each other. And I got into that because a good few years ago, I was looking for opportunities to teach this thing called clean language. And it was really hard to get a bunch of people to pay to come together in London or wherever 
So I thought, well, if I want to get this stuff out there, because I think it's important, I think it's interesting, I think it's useful, I'm going to have to work out how to teach it online. And that's probably 10 years ago, maybe a bit longer. So I've been teaching a soft skill for longer than almost anybody has been teaching soft skills online. And that back then were the days when people said you couldn't do coaching online, you couldn't do hypnosis online, you couldn't realistically teach anything involving real human beings online. Online was just the place that you would broadcast to an audience. But actually, that's not true. And over the last year and a half, we've proved that it's not true. Yeah, I think everyone who's dealing with people in that sense had to go through this. And, you know, when the lockdown happened in Milan, because that was quite early, I was planning to go to Cyprus anyway. And I did at the end with my mom and I was um, hosting an event actually there. And because I was coming from Milan, the uh, government or whoever from the Ministry of Health contacted us and said, well, if, because you're coming in Milan, please stay home for the next few days. I was like, okay. So I'm like, <laughs> what do I do now? You know, I had people registered. So yeah, I ended up doing an online webinar or whatever. So yeah, we, we got thrown into that, I guess. But you've been, yeah, your business exploded, I guess. Uh, absolutely. We were absolutely manic and expanded from being just a, a two-person show, myself and my husband, into having, you know, licensed trainers and clients all over the world and all that kind of thing. And at one level, that was just basically teaching facilitators and trainers and agile coaches and design thinkers and all that, how to do workshops online. But one of the themes that continued to run through it was this thing, clean language, which is my other specialist subject. And I think that knowing about clean language makes you a better workshop facilitator. And it also makes you a better online workshop facilitator. What's your story with clean language? So clean language, let me just do a quick definition. Yeah. Clean language is not about not swearing. It's not about speaking simply and clearly or not primarily about that. What it is, is a precision inquiry technique, a way of finding out what someone is really thinking and feeling, what's behind their words, what's behind their gestures. And there are two big elements to it. One is this precision questions, the clean language questions. And the other element is the way it works with metaphor. Metaphor is the native language of the unconscious mind. It's the stuff of thought. We can't think except by thinking in metaphors. And the clean language questions are optimized for asking about the metaphors that appear in people's thoughts. Now, what gets really interesting about that is that everybody, the metaphors in people's language, the metaphors in people's thoughts are completely unique to the individual. And what these questions do is really start to explore what, in an elegant way, what do people mean by what they say? that they don't know they know? What are the hidden meanings that were hidden even to the person who said the thing in the first place? So clean language, its origin is in psychotherapy from a guy called David Grove, who came up with it as a method of exploring the metaphors that people used in talking about their experiences, notably their traumatic experiences, and using that to help to guide their systems to heal. And that's a really high value application of clean language. And it extended into coaching. So outside psychotherapy and trauma into coaching, helping people to achieve what they wanted in life, all that kind of thing. Nowadays, people like myself and others use our foundation in clean language to help 
groups to become more aware of each other's thinking, preferences, all those kind of things, without seeking to help to invite them to change particularly. It's not necessarily about getting all the people in your workshop to suddenly be jolly and bright, though you can. (laughs) It's much more about getting all the people in the workshop to delight in the fact that each other are thinking different things and get curious about the difference between the different ideas in the workshop. And of course, in building any user experience, you also will be using metaphor. And user experience designers, business architects, those kind of things, you listen for the metaphors that people use in describing the experience they want or the product they want or the service they want and use these questions to find out more about it. Sorry, rant over. That's the definition of what clean energy is. And you asked me how I got into it. It depends how far you want to go back. My dad was doing research on metaphor when I was a teenager. I read the book that inspired David Grove, I think, to get into this when I was a teenager because my dad had it. So much later, about, I think it's about a scary number of years ago, it's nearly 20 years ago, I first came across clean language. It instantly, oh, I was also a news journalist. So I was used to using questions to find out what people really meant by what they said. So when I came across clean language, it absolutely fitted with me and my preferences. I knew about metaphor. I knew about questioning. I knew about everybody's got a story. It's up to you to find it. And those three things came together for me with clean language. I think Glory lies where we are at now. I'm going to ask you about gut feelings, but not, not just to put the question here, but you mentioned that we use clean language. Obviously, it's, it's, it's an inquiry method, right? And it helps because as you were talking, I kind of felt that it allows people to deeply understand what's in the mind of someone rather than assuming or having a different perception. So how do you see gut feelings and clean language? Well, this is where I think clean language has got some understandings which are becoming more and more obvious. A lot of people have been reading Bessel van der Volk, The Body Keeps the Score, in the last couple of years. And his idea around how bodies hold feelings and emotions is really, really interesting and echoes something that David Grove observed, again, probably about 20 years ago. It's a long time ago. He noticed that when people talked about their metaphors, he could ask them, whereabouts is that? And they would indicate a place in or around their bodies. People keep their thoughts and their feelings in different places. And you will often find that people keep a particularly important feeling in their gut or in their chest, or they'll say, oh, it's in the back of my head or the front of my head or tip of my tongue. These phrases that sound like metaphors are literally true for people at some level. So my friend James Tripp, who is interested in clean language and uses it in his work quite deeply, he came up with this idea of asking people, what does your head know about that, whatever we've been talking about? And then What does your heart know about that? Same thing. And what does your gut know about that? And what he found was that people were confidently able to answer these questions. You know, not everybody for all the time, but most people, most of the time. So for me, what's interesting there about gut feelings is you could also ask about heart feelings. They will be different to head feelings and they will be different from each other. 
heart and gut. So when asked, do you trust your gut, Judy? Well, I will say yes, sometimes. And my gut feelings are amongst my feelings. I have feelings all over my body. They are of a special type, but that doesn't make them any truer necessarily. It depends what you mean by truth. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. And I'm trying to think uh, my brain is going in different directions here, like where to can I ask you the a, conversation? Can, yeah. Can I ask you a question then? Yeah. What does your gut know about what I just said? My gut? I don't think much, if not nothing. Mm. <laughs> And what does your heart know about what I just said? It's difficult. I think I need time to be able to differentiate mm. how uh, my gut feelings and my heart feelings. And that's not uncommon, that actually mm. for a lot of people, it takes more time to connect with the feelings that are in their body than with the thoughts that are in their head. And this is something that has been observed in NLP, neurolinguistic programming, you've probably come across that over the years. And there's a there's an approach called MBIT, which is a derivative of NLP, um, which focuses on this idea of feelings being in the body. And yeah, it's commonly reported that people take longer to get in touch with their body feelings than with their head thoughts, and also to differentiate them from each other. Yeah, I think I tend to mix now that you're talking, I'm trying to reflect, but I need to keep my attention here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, go into a deep self-reflection that for me, when I kind of, and this is actually what I say in my first episode with myself for like six minutes when I explain why I started this podcast and so on is for me, when I started, I'm not going to say always trusting, but at least listening to my gut things kind of changed because I started also making decisions based on my gut and not just on, you know, my brain, my head and some kind of rationality. And this did make a difference for me. And, and I still do this, but now I, now I have to figure out the, the hard feelings. Uh, <laughs> I, but I try to keep also me as a person in general to keep like feelings kind of separate to what I try to do. So but that one I know. But maybe I should integrate it and try, mm. at least try, because I'm usually an advocate of trying things <laughs> and taking risks. I find, so. I'm, I'm really curious about that, because for me, I, I find it really difficult to make decisions without really being in touch with my body feelings. If I'm studying something new and want to write something, create something, I need to walk mm -hmm. to get my thoughts to sort themselves out. And I've been reading a really interesting book. May I recommend a book? It's called Move by Caroline Williams. And it's all about the cognitive effects of movement and including walking and breathing and exercise and yoga and all those kind of things. It's a compilation of all the latest research on how the body affects thinking and, of course, feeling. Thinking includes feeling for her and for a whole bunch of other authors. Because we're not disembodied brains in jars. We are whole human beings. It takes me back to design school in that sense, as you're talking, because we have like the mind, the heart and the hand, right? The arm mm. that makes us do things, create stuff, even draw, whatever, get what's here and here, like, okay, for the audio lessons, what's in the brain and the heart out there and visualize that and make mm. it kind of tangible. And it, it's, it's just taking me back to, well, 15 years ago or so what you're talking about here but you know I was very tempted to do this episode using clean language but then I was like no I'm not gonna do this 
want to be a really good exercise, but uh, I want to make the most of you here. Uh, <laughs> is interviewing people using clean language is a mixed blessing. When I use clean language in interviews, I need to make sure that the framing is really, really clear to everybody. And I will never only use clean language if I'm interviewing somebody, whether that's a recruitment interview, a research interview, an interview for a podcast. I used to have a podcast as well. You might check that out on YouTube. There's a whole bunch of Collaboration Dynamics podcasts in which I'm primarily using clean language questions to interview my podcast interviewees. What's interesting about that is, of course, I do ask them about their metaphors. I ask them about their where their feelings are, all those kind of things, which is great fun. But I won't typically only use clean language questions in those interviews because it's not just about hearing the stream of consciousness from the interviewee. It's also about, well, what do my listeners want to hear from this person? As the interviewer, you're representing the listeners. You've got your own agenda. It's not just about freeform them talking. And it's not the same as coaching somebody using clean language, where the clean language coach seeks to reduce their presence in the coaching session as far as possible so that the coachee takes center stage, determines the agenda, works out you know, what's important, where we should end up. And the clean language questions then provide a structured process to get them there. So it's quite distinct, clean language in coaching, clean language in interviewing, and clean language in working with groups and teams Work, using clean language with groups and teams can also be subdivided into ones where there is, if you like, an external agenda and ones where the group or team, the idea is to encourage them to self-organize and to determine their own topics and fate. So there, clean language can be used in all, a bunch of different contexts. Ad break. No, not an ad. But as you may have noticed, this show has no sponsors, but you can still support Gut Talks by leaving five stars or a comment on your podcast player and like, share, and follow the social media channels of Gut, W-G-U-T-T. All links are in the show notes. Now let's get going. You know, this weekend I was mentoring at the hackathon, actually, a fashion tech hackathon, and it didn't occur to me to try to use actually clean language. But to be honest, I had like slots of 30 minutes. By the time we said hello, it was over. But the dynamics of the team were very difficult because, and that's always the case. It's nothing new, but mm-hmm. participants were, first of all, online, different languages, different countries. They didn't know each other, obviously. And each one of them came with their own idea and no one wanted to let go, kind of which is a little bit difficult, right? Um, Mm. Especially when it's the first time you participate in such an event and you don't know what to expect exactly. It's it's all new. And maybe using clean language for sure would have probably helped somehow, but I think it would have needed time. How do you do this actually in in different settings? You're talking about group work, uh, coaching, facilitating. Well, let's just pay attention to the specific one that Mm. you've just come up with hackathon now i think that adding different languages to the mix might make this a step too far but i'm thinking of a hackathon i was involved in probably three years ago so it's before the lockdowns and it was in person and we'd been invited to come and do half a day of if you like team development for the group 
before they would then go into 48 hours of hackathon. There were about 50 people in the rooms, wasn't enormous. And we introduced them to these ideas as this is a way to get to know a few of the people around you. And what I would typically do is first just get them to talk to each other in pairs about something important or in threes is even feels even safer so that they start listening to each other. Then I'll do an activity in which each person has a topic to talk about for a minute, something important to them. And we get the group to take it in turns to be the listener and the talker. The listener then goes through three states in the course of a minute. They start off by listening really well, nodding, smiling, encouraging the other person to talk. Then 20 seconds of being visibly distracted and then 20 seconds of listening again. And then they swap over. What this activity reveals to people in a very visceral way, in a very gut feeling way, is that when people don't listen to you, you stop talking. While it's not the clean language questions, it's an important activity for getting people to really hear each other. And once I've done those couple of activities, the next activity is to start people talking about a metaphor such as when you're working at your best, you're like, what? And I might introduce them to the first two clean language questions, which are what kind of X? And is there anything else about X? Where X stands for one or more of the other person's words. And if you do something like, oh, you put them in pairs or threes and they get a couple of minutes each to use those questions to find out more about the other person's metaphor. And you say, like, when, when I'm working in this hackathon at my best, I'm like a light bulb. And the person would go, well, what kind of light bulb? Is there anything else about light bulb? What kind of light? Is there anything else about that light? So you can use these questions over and over again to find out loads about each other's things. And what that little sequence does, you can do that sequence in half an hour. What that sequence does is it gets people warmed up to talking, gets people warmed up to listening, gets people warmed up to asking questions and get, gets people warmed up to metaphor. And that sequence puts people in a really creative state to go into whatever they're going to do next. Yeah, I like that, actually, the way you're presenting it. I'm, I'm going to try this one. <laughs> you know, but it's <laughs> when you're in a physical setting, it's, it's different because you would need people to turn on their cameras virtually. Mm -hmm. It is Absolutely. a bit more, more challenging. And again, speaking or being confident enough and clear enough in you know whatever language they're going to mm -hmm. be talking together. Yeah. So one so of the things that when, when we're designing highly engaging online events, which is the mm. other thing we do. These are some of the things we pay close attention to. You know, if you want the event to be highly engaging and people to really get involved, then either they are going to turn on their cameras or they're going to have a jolly, jolly good reason not to. And the research shows that people will report an event to be a success if they have actively participated. Now, the chances are that in any lengthy event, if they don't turn on their camera, they're not going to engage. They're not going to actively participate. And that's just the facts. We'd all love it to be different, but it's not true. This, it ties back to this thing that people are not brains in jars. We're human beings. And we've evolved to have a proximity bias, to pay attention to the stuff that is close to us. And also we pay more attention to stuff which is big around us, not to stuff which is small and disappearing in a corner of our desk. And in a hackathon where you want people to really share ideas and innovation, that challenge becomes even richer because you need them to be effectively dipping into their own imagination, their own thoughts, their own innovative thinking and creativity. 
and then pulling themselves back into the group and engaging deeply with other people and cross-fertilizing ideas. So if I'm designing that kind of event, I wish I could do it with loads of different languages. I wish I could do it with thousands of people. But realistically, I think there are currently quite sharp limits on what is possible. And beyond those limits, you probably want to subdivide, for example, into language groups and then use some different kind of mechanism to cross-fertilize between the language groups. There's some really, really interesting stuff being done in AI about translation at the moment, which will, in the very near future, create some of the cross-fertilization possibilities that we obviously sure. want. But yeah. I don't think they're quite there yet. Yeah, I've seen some that are really good, but again, it's in a specific context, I guess. So some AI around this. But I have a question, and this is taking me back to almost... 10 or nine years ago, I started teaching and I was quite young, actually. I was not much older than the students back then. And um, it was like for bachelor's degrees or foundation studies. So mostly designers in fashion, uh, architecture, graphic design, and so on. And I had a class of like 25, 30 people. And one thing I noticed, you know, people get quite distracted in general or, or even to get started, you know, everyone wants to chit-chat and whatever. And I started doing this and it was one of my fellow actually colleagues who told me that that's what he would be doing. You said when someone stops talking, then, you know, it means someone's not, you know, listening and whatever. So what I would do is like start integrating words and then sentences that make absolutely no sense into the whole entire conversation and then they would stop actually like you would have 30 people stopping and trying to see what is she trying to say here so would that mean that they were listening or not listening or partially listening or how what is this well i think one of the things with lecturing any kind of lecturing is that you only ever have partial attention to a lecture people are always thinking about other things so the development of newer ways of teaching the classic text is Sharon Bowman's training from the back of the room or people also talk about the flipped classroom where it's not about the teacher teaching them or lecturing them the main source of learning is the impulse from the learner to get the knowledge and that the teacher's role is to facilitate them to find the information and to make it relevant to themselves I think is really, really important. And it's especially important when we're thinking about online learning events of all kinds. Far too many people just talk at the screen for 45 minutes and then say, any questions? And funnily enough, nobody's still listening. Yeah, I, actually, I never do that. When I now they ask me to lecture, I said, just so you know, it's going to be interactive. Mm. <laughs> and the universe, usually they're okay with that because yeah. otherwise I think... I don't like the word teaching personally. I, mm. I think I'm more guiding. And mm. I, I'm usually upfront with the students also. I always say, I don't know everything. I just share what I know and let's mm. talk about it, you know. But uh, yeah, I just use the word because I don't know what else to use mm. uh, in yeah. that sense. You know? and it, uh, yeah, we, we had a, a great debate about, we've got a course that is currently called, and I, I don't like the name, but it, this is what it's currently called, Exceptional Remote Learning Facilitation. That's a mouthful, yeah. <laughs> it's a bit of a mouthful, but the people who want it, that is people who want to facilitate learning rather than being lecturers, recognize what it is. And, oh, right, it's about facilitating learning 
in an online environment like this, live, not about recording acres of five-minute videos, each five-minute video teaching two learning points or whatever it is you're supposed to do with these recorded videos. Yeah, I dipped into the whole recorded teaching stuff a few years ago. And, you know, it's some people get it, but the vast majority of people who buy those recorded online courses never look at them. I'm one of them. <laughs> I've done this. Yeah. I don't know. There's something about it. Live, also, I would attend. Yeah. It's also yeah. true, of course, of books. That the reason that people have piles of books to read on their dressing tables or whatever is because they somehow in their system, they believe that buying the book was the thing that achieved the result. Not really. <laughs> but you know what? It's the same thing when you live in a country because you're like, I can go anytime. You just don't mm. go visit a specific site. Or yeah, so. it's available. So it's, it's interesting how humans do this stuff. <laughs> So what did you notice in, in your you know, work and practice and so on? What is it that you learned about human beings that surprised you somehow? Ooh, so many things. I mean, I was at the start of my clean language journey. I was so ignorant about how other people were different from me and how they were similar. One of the, I suppose the biggest realization, and this is such an important realization, is that I was comparing my inside with their outside, if you see what I mean, that I was okay. imagining that because I was full of confusion and tensions and muddles and messes and conflicts and all the their internal dramas and all the things that happen inside a human being, and I was looking at other people, and well, clearly they don't have any of that, they're all sorted. But that's because I was comparing my inside with their outside. And once I started using clean language questions to even get the tiniest peak into what was going on inside them, I started to realize that I wasn't that weird after all. And that was very reassuring. So you felt kind I of know. normal? Well, no, no, it was not, 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 not normal, clearly. No, clearly, I still acknowledge myself to be deeply peculiar. But, um, but at least the clean language gave me a little tiny window into how other people were doing their thinking and feeling. And how it also had confusion and tension and drama and internal conflict and all that stuff going on, even though it was different from mine. And that difference makes it absolutely fascinating to suddenly discover a friend of mine who I did a lot of my training with in clean language. He did his university degree in astrophysics. And every time you tried to get him to say a metaphor, it would be totally enormously huge. <laughs> And, you know, it would be, and um, my feelings about this are like string theory. And you go, what? <laughs> but the great thing about clean language is you can go, what kind of string theory? And get them to explain. What kind of end of the universe? What kind of multiverse? And get them to explain. Or you could get a, an interesting person who uh, would say things like, and, yeah, when I'm at my happiest, it's like I'm at the bottom of a really deep, dark cave. What? That's so different to mine. You don't say that. You just say, and when you're at the happiest, it's like you're at the bottom of a deep, dark cave. What kind of deep, dark cave? And is there a relationship between that deep, dark cave and happiest? And get them to explain how it all fits together. I just want to ask you, in business settings, how do you use clean language? Who, who are your clients? What, what are they after? There are a few different contexts. 
one of the main groups I teach clean language to as a specific skill is facilitators, trainers, workshop leaders, agile coaches. They use it to support their groups and teams to understand themselves better, but it also gives the facilitator a real confidence, a real strength to appreciate that even perhaps especially when things are not going according to plan, they can turn to these clean language skills and get curious about what's happening rather than panicking. So that's one specific group that loves to learn clean language. The other context that I'm teaching clean language tends to be with groups and teams who want to work best together, often distributed teams, and uh, they want to learn to ask more questions, understand how each individual feels about the way they're working together, even the tools they're using for distributed work. Um, There are specific methods we teach about giving and receiving feedback, which in my opinion are significantly better than the ones generally taught. And there are also some specific ways that clean approaches conflict and tension and what might be called drama that can be very useful in groups and teams where they want to get better at arguing with each other. Because as you know, arguing within a group or a team is one of the most important creative skills. If some members of the group get really distressed whenever there's an argument going on, you're not going to have the most creative, innovative and productive team. So teaching them to get good at that kind of interaction is part of what we do in our work called collaboration dynamics. I also mix clean language into pretty much everything I do. I can't not. It's just part of my system now. Yeah. So even when I'm maybe talking to a prospective client about what they might want us to do, what we'll be doing is using our listening skills and our clean language questions to really find out what it is that they're trying to achieve. And at a deeper level, not just at one sentence level, and by finding out more deeply what they're trying to achieve, they learn more about it because they probably didn't know when they walked into the conversation. But we learn more about it. We understand whether this is something we can actually help with or whether we should refer them to somebody else. And that means we do better business as an organization. We do less of what what isn't core to us and more of what is. I think it's great for sales also. In general, and yes. it, either it allows you to, to choose who you can work with and who you mm. can add value for, actually. And again, this is this is great and goes back to the experience for me in that sense because people will still refer to you as I remember that you know Judy said, no, we're not the right fit. Let's say go mm. here, but then you would have like this great stamp. That's uh, awesome. I like this, and and I really I'm really curious to know what why do you do what you do. Because I enjoy it because I think that, yeah, one of my top personal values is being useful. And this seems to be a way that I can be useful, which brings value to people and which plays to my strengths. I'm not particularly good at many other things, but I'm pretty good at this. And uh, I know we can talk forever, but for the sake of the audience here, I thought that was uh, brilliant. And thanks again for sharing all of that and your thoughts. I don't know if there's anything we didn't touch on you would like to share. Well, I suppose I should say I'm easy to find on the internet if you want to talk more about this stuff. And there's a lot of my stuff around the internet. There's a whole load of blog posts on reesmccann.com, which is my business's site. 
I'm Reese McCann, is Steve McCann, my husband and business partner. All the links will be in the show notes. Yeah. So look me up. And I love talking about this stuff. So at the moment, I'm particularly looking for opportunities to appear on podcasts and uh, and talk at conferences and that kind of thing. So um, if you know of an, an opportunity, shoot me a message. Cool. Thank you so much. You are listening to Gut Talks by Maria Matloub. To support the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and share it with anyone who could benefit from listening to these stories and experiences. To continue the conversation, join the Telegram channel. All links are in the show notes. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.